Yes, we are starting a new series this morning. Uh, we are going to be working our way, verse by verse, through the book of Jonah. Jonah is one of the more familiar stories of the Old Testament. I hope that uh, you are pretty familiar with it. If not, I would encourage you to be reading the book of Jonah. It's very short, so you can read it through each uh, week uh, as we, we study this particular book. As I say, it, it is pretty familiar. It's a story that is often used in, in Sunday school classes. And uh, if you have any religious training or a background, I imagine you are pretty familiar with the, with the story. It is one of the most beloved portions of the Word of God. It is also one of the most ridiculed portions of the Word of God. Uh, it is equally as uh, despised as it is loved. As I said, it's often ridiculed uh, because of its miraculous elements. So this morning, we begin by trying to bring some clarity to the book of Jonah. Some clarity to the book of Jonah. That's my theme. Clarity to the book of Jonah. First, clarity regarding the date of Jonah. It simply begins with Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, now. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. The now almost seems like a continuation of a narrative. However, it's not a particular uh, continuation of the book that precedes it. Uh, it simply is giving us an introduction to an event that is taking place. So when is now in history? Well, it might be helpful to realize that Jonah is a contemporary of Hosea and Amos, ministering during the reign of Jeroboam. Jonah's ministry would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 760 B.C. Clarity regarding the person of Jonah. Verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The name Jonah means dove. And Jonah is clearly identified in this passage <coughs> as the son of Amittai. The son of Amittai. There are people who have called into question the existence of the prophet Noah. Many have, not many, but there are numbers that have suggested that the book of Jonah is an allegory. It's not to be taken literally that these events did not take place and perhaps Jonah himself did not ever exist. Uh, it is an allegory intended to teach a basic truth that has no basis in fact or in history. However, that certainly is not the approach that we're going to be taking to this book. Um, if it had no basis in fact and has no basic in history, it really isn't very worthwhile in teaching us much truth about the person and work of God. But there is great reason to accept the historical nature of the book of Jonah. First of all, the Old Testament affirms the reality of Jonah's existence. 
You don't need to turn there. But in 2 Kings chapter 14, starting at verse 25, it says this. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai. So we have this historical reference to Jonah ministering during the reign of Jeroboam. He is identified as the servant of God, the son of Amittai, and he's also referred to as a prophet that comes from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer was a city in the southern, southern end of Galilee. So not only do we have the Old Testament's affirmation of the historicity of at least the person of Jonah, but in the New Testament, we have Jesus' own affirmation concerning not only the prophet, but the story itself. You may want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is speaking about the importance of following his word, of living in keeping with his teaching. And in this affirmation, Jesus affirmed the historical reality of the prophet. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So here Jesus refers to the prophet Jonah. He also affirmed the truth of the story of the book of Jonah. For look at verse 41 of Matthew 12. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And certainly that is a main thrust of the book of Jonah. How Jonah is going to go to the city of Nineveh and the people do indeed repent. But not only is the story of the book of Jonah affirmed, but Jesus even affirmed the reality of the great fish that swallowed Jonah. Notice verse 40. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So here is Jesus that is affirming that Jonah was indeed in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. And not only does he affirm that statement, but Jesus uses that truth to account and illustrate his own death and resurrection. For look at verse 40 again. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here he's drawing a comparison. He's certainly not drawing a comparison to, analo to an analogy. Jesus is not speaking of an allegorical being in the uh, earth for three days and three nights. Indeed, Jesus is going to be buried in a tomb in a very literal sense. And he points to the prophet Jonah's being in the belly of the fish as representation 
of his own being in the earth for three days and three nights. So there is good reason to, re to accept the historicity of the book of Jonah. Clarity regarding the city of Nineveh. Clarity regarding the city of Nineveh. Jonah's destination was the Assyrian city of Nineveh, situated on the eastern bank of the river Tigris. Today its ruins lie opposite the city of Mosul in northern Iraq. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire under Sennacherib. The scripture repeatedly refers to Nineveh as a great city. Notice verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, and then the description, that great city, that great city. Nineveh is referred to numerous times as a great city. For example, if you look at Jonah 3.2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Uh, so uh, Nineveh was great in many ways. First, it was great in terms of its size, in terms of its radius, in terms of its geographical footprint. The scriptures state that it took three days to walk through it. Look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Three days journey in breadth. Historians tell us that it was the largest city of that particular period in time. It is at this point some of the historians uh, attack the accuracy of the scriptures and call the description of Nineveh into question. The ancient city of Nineveh has been discovered and the walled city has been excavated and that walled city does not seem to be uh, anywhere near as large as it's described in Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, as requiring a three days journey to travel through it. Uh, as a result, uh, some have sought to translate it, saying it requires three days to visit it. Uh, the idea that there's so much to see there that you need to spend three, time, three uh, days to take it all in. Like you might need a week uh, to uh, spend in New York City if you're really going to see the town, okay? But that really is not faithful to the uh, translation of the Hebrew at that point. However, when the scripture speaks of Nineveh as a great city, it is not speaking simply of the walled city but it's also speaking about its environs. We know that not simply as a way to justify uh, the archeological evidence, but we know that from Genesis chapter 10 itself. For listen to Genesis chapter 10 verses 11 and 20. It's referring to Cush's activities and his travels. 
From that land, he went into Assyria, which, of course, is where Nineveh is. He went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Rezin. Between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. That's important. That is the great city. It is speaking of the region as the great city. Not simply Nineveh, but Nineveh and its environs. That's what the scripture itself refers to as the great city of Nineveh. The city and its environs, according to Genesis chapter 10. Now that is not unusual to us. Uh, We certainly see that in many different ways. For example, I lived in the city of Reading for a period of time. I was able to minister at our Reading Bible Fellowship Church. And most people, when they think of the city of Reading, don't really think of the city proper. Uh, Actually, the geographical region of Reading itself is quite small. The, The city proper is not large at all. But what you have is you have Reading, and you have Wyomissing, and you have West Wyomissing, and you have Exeter, and, and they all kind of flow together. And when most people think of going to Reading, they encompass Wyomissing, West Wyomissing, and its environs. They, in fact, it would be even, you'd have to know Reading well to know when you have crossed from Reading into West Reading. Uh, Probably most people wouldn't be able to distinguish that. Well, we use Reading in the broad sense of the term. There's nothing unusual about that. There's, there's nothing that questions reliability, authenticity, accuracy in understanding how verbiage is used, especially when you can point to passages such as Genesis chapter 10 that demonstrate not only the plausibility, but the fact that that's actually how the scripture itself refers to the city, refers to the city proper and its environs. Next, Nineveh was great in terms of its populace, great in terms of its populace, the the number of residents. Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. Jonah 4, 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So now it refers to as 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. Uh, Some have tried to say that that simply means uh, speaking of the ignorance and of the uh, blindness of the people of Nineveh so that there's 120,000 people that are blind to the truth of God's word, etc. But the much more normative uh, way of reading that passage is that there are 120,000 people there who do not know their left hand from their right, meaning children. Those that have not reached the age of knowing their left hand from their right. I was just uh, with uh, the Merrick family on my vacation, and we had uh, uh, Felix in the car with us. And uh, Felix is pretty good with directions. He, he pays attention. He's uh, turning six years old. He's not real good yet with left and right. And uh, so we said, which way do we go? He said, that way. 
And we said, that's right. And after he gave a couple directions, he was actually saying, that's right, that's left. He was getting it. But as he started, he was having difficulty in knowing his left from his right. We've all worked with children. We understand that concept. So here are, here's a city that, and its environs that would have had 120,000 children in it. Uh, others have worked out that that would mean an, a, a total populace of about 600,000 people. Uh, don't know that for a fact, but it gives you an idea. It's a great city is what the emphasis is in this passage. Nineveh is also a wicked city, according to verse 2 of chapter 1. Agrize, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it for their evil. The Assyrians were an atrocious group of people, and they were known for their atrocities. They, they were known for their fervor in war. They were known for being an, an obstinate and difficult people. Uh, I'm not going to go into great extents here, for the scripture does not. But simply that they are an evil people. They were a people that were worthy of condemnation. Notice verse 2. That great city, call out against it for their evil. They were to be condemned. So Jonah was to go and to preach and condemn the city of Nineveh for their evil. The atrocities that the Assyrians had not escaped the Lord's attention. For it tells us at the end of verse 2, for their evil has come up before me. God was well aware of what they had done. God was well aware of their atrocities. God was well aware of their sinfulness. And so he says to Jonah, rise up and go to that great city and preach condemnation against it. As we move on, there's clarity regarding the charge to Jonah. Clarity regarding the charge to Jonah. God's charge to Jonah was unmistakably clear. For God spoke to Jonah, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Uh, he actually didn't just simply receive a dream or a vision, but God actually spoke audibly to Jonah. God spoke directly to Jonah. For it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. There, there was no mediator between Jonah and God. In other words, God didn't say to a prophet, go and tell Jonah that he is to do such and such. There was no middleman. There was, there was no way in which Jonah could have mistaken that this message is coming from God. Right? There, there was no reason to question. There, there was no basis for doubt. There, there was no uncertainty, no unreasonableness. This must be God speaking to Jonah. And God's word was unmistakably clear as to what Jonah was to do. Notice verse 2. Go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it. First, it was clear that Jonah was to get up and go. Verse 2. Arise. NIV. Go to the great city. It was also clear as to where Jonah was to go. 
he was to go to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh. Now, you may think that that's a trivial thought, but in actuality, it's not. For if you remember the story of Abraham and his call, it is said of Abraham, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God said to Abraham, I want you to get up and go. Leave your land, leave your family, and as you go, I will reveal where your final destination is. Right now, just get up and go. God doesn't simply say to to, uh, Jonah, get up and go, but he gives them the destination from the get-go. Go to Nineveh. Abraham went even though he did not know where he was going. And he is commended for his faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it states, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So here is this Abraham, this, this pillar and example of faith, because God said to him, go, and he went not knowing where he's going. Good job, Abraham. Pat him on the back. Okay, He's following the will of God. It was clear what Jonah was to do when he arrived at Nineveh. Verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. He was to pronounce judgment, condemnation, against the city of Nineveh. Clear. Crystal clear. Can't miss it. Which brings us to, and really is the essence and theme of this book, clarity regarding the disobedience of Jonah. Jonah is clearly disobedient to God. The clear rebelliousness of Jonah. Jonah clearly acted contrary to God's will. Notice Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. But. But. Okay. Uh, If you circle in your Bibles, the simple little conjunction, but is very important, for it's a conversive. It It is saying, God said one thing, but Jonah did another. Instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah heads in the complete opposite direction to Tarshish. Three times in one verse, it states that Jonah is going to Tarshish. Notice Jonah 1.3. But Jonah now rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid him the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Okay, Don't miss this, in other words. Three times. God said, go to Nineveh. What does he do? He goes to Tarshish. He goes to Tarshish. He goes to Tarshish. And Tarshish, by the map, is in the exact opposite direction. It's 180 degrees. Okay? God says, go there. And he goes 
there. Jonas' disobedience was deliberate. It was with forethought. It was with full knowledge and comprehension. It was clear as to what God wanted him to do. It was equally clear that Jonah didn't want to do it. For it was deliberate. Notice in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and now notice this, and found a ship going to Tarshish. Key word, found. He found. means he searched. He looked for. He didn't just go down to the seaport and take the first ship that he could find. It wasn't just that he, he said, I'm not going go to go to Nineveh. I'll go anywhere I can, but I just don't want to go to Nineveh. No, he, he sought out a ship that was headed in the totally opposite direction, deliberately going the way that God had told him not to go. The premeditation that is involved in this response is also noted in verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare. Okay, why is it telling us that he paid the fare? It is to speak of these continual choices that he is making. He got on, he found the ship, but once he found the ship, he could have turned back. Once he discovered this ship, he should have said, you know, here I am, I'm standing in front of this ship, and what am I doing here? God doesn't want me on this ship. God wants me to go back to he wants to go in the totally opposite direction. He could have walked away. But he doesn't. He buys a fare. Okay, so he, he buys his ticket to go to Tarshish. Well, have you ever bought a ticket you haven't used? I have. He didn't have to get on board that ship. Here's the next deliberate decision. Here is a continuous act. Here are choices that he is making repeated choices to disobey God. So now he gets on ship. Verse 3. So he paid the fare and went down into it. So he gets his bunk. He gets his, he gets his place to stay. And he goes with them to Tarshish. Clear act of disobedience. And Jonah clearly acted in a rebellious way. For the scripture goes out of its way to demonstrate to us what Jonah was doing. What was in Jonah's mind. Notice verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was trying to get away from God. There's the rebellion. He was trying to get away from God. 
Presently, we do not know the motive for Jonah's disobedience. We don't know why he's trying to flee from God. We don't know why he's not willing to go. It's told to us in chapter 4, but I'm not going there. We'll get there when we get there. It is made known to us what's going on in the hearts and, and mind of Jonah, so we don't have to guess about it. But that's not this morning. That brings the whole book into focus. We're going to wait till we get there. We're going to follow the narrative. But the point for us this morning is that his intention was to flee the presence of God. Again, some of the commentators have their way with Jonah and his lack of understanding of God, his lack of perception by trying to flee from the presence of God. Okay. We all know that there is nowhere that you can flee to to avoid the presence of God. We all know that. Guess what? So did Jonah. Jonah knew that too. Jonah is no ignoramus. He's a prophet of God. The psalmist had said, and the psalms existed in the time of Jonah, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shoal, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's no place that you can go and flee from God's presence. Jonah knew that. So, what are we to think about this action of Jonah? What are some conclusions we can draw? Well, first, all too often, our actions are inconsistent with what we know about God. All too often, we make decisions that are inconsistent with what we know about the nature and character of God. Obedience requires more than knowledge. Obedience isn't simply understanding what it is that I am to do. But obedience requires a heart of submissiveness. It requires a measure of love in order to want to achieve and accomplish the will of God. Jonah was not interested in accomplishing and achieving the will of God. He knew what he was to do. He didn't want to do it. There's lesson number one. That is that it's very possible that we can know what God wants us to do and not want to do it. And even take steps to act and go contrary to what we know God wants us to do. But not only was Jonah acting contrary to what God had said, Jonah was also acting contrary to his own confession, to his own declaration of allegiance to God. Look down at Jonah chapter 1, verse 9. 
Jonah is now aboard the ship. The storm comes. The sailors question Jonah. Notice verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Note he did not say, I used to fear the God of heaven. I used to seek to be obedient. I used to be concerned about doing his will. I used to think about the consequences of disobedience. He said, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. This God who is over the seas is the one I fear, using the seas to go in the opposite direction he wants me to go. The inconsistency of that. Many times, our confession and our actions can be diverse from each other. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Master, and don't do what I tell you to do? That's easy to do. It's easy to pray to the Lord. It's easy to speak of our allegiance to the Lord and at the same time knowingly make decisions that run contrary to what God would have us to do. So that brings us to the question, are the actions of Jonah shocking? Are they shocking? What are we to think about this disobedience of Jonah? Well, certainly they are inconsistent with the actions of a prophet. Certainly we wouldn't think that a prophet is going to purposefully choose to disobey God and to go in the direct opposite direction that he tells us to go and want to get away from God's presence. Certainly it's inconsistent. But it's more than just the fact that it's shocking and that it is inconsistent. We are to learn this morning that even God's prophets at times were rebellious to God. Even God's prophets were at times rebellious to God. Here is Jonah. He's a prophet. It tells us he is a prophet. It tells us he has the word and it tells us that he's disobedient to God, he's going in the opposite direction. Now, there are two responses that one could have to that knowledge. The first is, I suppose we could be comforted by that and say, well, even the prophets disobeyed God, therefore, it's not such a big deal that I disobey God. Uh, man, God told him directly what to do. God hasn't spoken to me. All God did is give me his word. <laughs> So, you know, uh, no big deal if I'm disobedient to God. Well, I suppose you could go in that direction, but I would encourage you don't. Uh, I don't think that's what we're to get from this. Rather, I think what we are to understand from this 
is that even a prophet can run contrary to God's word. And if that is true, that even a prophet who fully knows, fully understands what God would have him to do, and in the past has been faithful and served God and used by him, get that from 2 Kings, that it's possible for even a person like that to be disobedient to God. Then my response should be, I better be careful. I ought to examine my own life. Is it possible that I'm a true child of God? Is it possible that I have a clear understanding of what God wants me to do? He has revealed himself in his word, and yet I'm living in active disobedience. I know that what God wants me to do is not what I'm doing. I've made some choices. I've taken some steps. And I've acted out a predetermined plan to do exactly what God's word tells me to do. That's possible. That's possible. And what is more frightening is, as we will see disclosed in the weeks that lie ahead, we can be impervious to that. We can be blind to that. We, we can get to the place where we actually justify our actions, as we will see that he does later on. So it is, yes, shocking, but revealing. Revealing. It is possible. It is possible that we can be like Jonah. It is possible that we can preach and teach and act in a way that contradicts all that we preach and teach. It's possible that you can teach Sunday school and make applications that you yourself don't follow. It's possible that you can stand and talk to a neighbor and give them good godly advice that you yourself are not implementing, that you aren't living up to. I say to my wife that she is fortunate that I do all the marriage counseling I do because I get convicted all the time. I tell people certain things and I, after they left, thought, you know, I don't do that. I need to confess that. I need to repent. It is so easy to speak and confess and yet act inconsistent with what we know. Obedience is so much more than knowing. That's why James says, do not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. Don't confuse our knowledge of God's word with a heart of submission and worship. 
It's so much easier to know than it is to do. And we can fool ourselves sometimes that in our knowledge, we think that we are pleasing God. In our understanding, in our maturity, in the level of understanding that we have reached, that now we are godly, righteous people. And that was the problem that God had with the Pharisees. They knew so much, but they acted in an inconsistent way. So as we study the book of Jonah, the first thing that I would say to you this morning is, does it have something to say to us? Certainly it does in many different respects, but today, is there an area of my life that I need to repent of, that I know what God wants me to do, but I just haven't been willing to do it? I have been stubborn, I've been disobedient, I know that God is not pleased, but I haven't cared. I've chosen to go my own way. If so, we should repent. We'll see what happens next in the life of Jonah and uh, see the, the consequences of choosing to be disobedient to the will of God. But this morning, let us repent early. Let us acknowledge quickly. Let us ask God to Search our hearts, and if we are walking with him, let us pray that we would continue to walk with him and that our children walk with him, for it is much more than just knowledge. It's a heart of submission to God. May God help us with that heart of submission. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for the lesson of Jonah. Thank you for allowing us to see that there are people that are truly in relationship with you, that are truly regenerate. That there are people that, that clearly understand your word. People that have been used by you. People that have been godly and have instructed and helped others. Who at points in their time act in outright disregard and disobedience to you. Oh, Lord, may it shed shivers down our spine. May we not rest in our laurels. May we not just look to our past, but, oh, Lord, help us to look to our present. Help us to examine and, and to be honest before you. Are you pleased with the choices that we have made? Are you, are you pleased with the actions that we are taking? Are we responding to your word in a way that honors you in our obedience or, Lord, are we, in fact, going in a way that we know you don't want us to go? If that is the case, bring us up short. Bring us to a place of repentance. Do a work in our hearts, I pray. And, Lord, if we are walking with you, I, I pray that you continue to help us to walk with you. Lord, guard our hearts, guard our thoughts. Search us, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in us. And lead us in the paths of righteousness for your sake. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.